1: All right, we're back again with the Pennsylvania
2: Woodsman podcast. Thanks for tuning in. What well, you know, Robbie? Not a whole lot, Mitchell. Just still uh still trying to get through this new house process and setting up for that, getting into the spring here. You it's fun signing your life away when you oh, buy a house, Yeah, isn't I know. It? I know. I thought uh I thought it was a lot of paperwork just going to see the house. Now it's now it's one Getting sent one thing after another, both lender, real estate agents. So, but it's for the good. It's all for the better.
1: It is for the better. I mean, you guys, you guys lucked out because it was like getting like down to the nitty gritty when you would be able to get a house and close all and like not that you didn't have a place to stay, but it was like the timing when you guys are getting married and stuff. Like,
2: yeah, it was. We we weren't getting nervous or anything, but we were every every night we were talking about it, and it just happened. House came up next day, we saw it. Next day, bid on it. Next day, we got it. So. Really, really blessed and lucky for that.
1: It was, and you know, like, as terrible as this market is right now for home, like buying a home, like that was the first one you guys put an offer in on. Yeah. And yep. I remember, you know, three years ago when my wife and I were in the process of trying to buy a house, we put four offers in before we finally got a house.
2: Yeah. I think we just, we just stumbled across something that was, and it was below our budget, so that's even a greater plus—not just finding a place, but something that.
1: Yeah, so now you'll be able to spend more money on hunting stuff. Yeah,
2: and I said, I said, to, I said to her, I said, "Well, we're saving, we're saving a good bit of money. I can just buy a new truck, and that'll pay for the truck. That extra money. Buy for <laughs>
1: buy a new truck, maybe go on a hunting trip. <laughs> yep, yep. You going? Are you planning on trying to set up <laughs> to go out west anytime soon?
2: Yeah, uh, my dad and I have been talking about it a lot. He wants to get out. Uh, some rules are changing out west, so he wants to get out. He has some points for Wyoming uh, that he wants to use up. You've been putting points in. Yeah, I've also been putting points in too. Um, So I'm going to try to get out. Vacation's tough this year with, like I said, the wedding and honeymoon and all that. I'm only two years into a job, so I don't have a whole lot, but uh, I'm hoping to get out hopefully for for antelope this year, uh, four or five days out there and –
1: that would be October, right?
2: Yeah, October would be in October. It's tough too, with because I'm coaching football as well, so it's, it's gonna be a big balancing act.
1: Now you're coaching football. Is your dad still coaching? Yeah,
2: he's coaching as well. Yeah. Um, he's he he doesn't. Uh, I mean, he cares about it, but he uh, he's his number one passion is hunting. So once hunting comes, he'll.
1: Well, he coached for a real long time. Yeah, he
2: coached youth for 12, 12 15 years.
1: It would be hard to balance that because, like, like, I know you guys love football. I mean, you guys love football way more than I ever did. I mean, I played with you guys, but I, I kind of lost my interest. But you, you still hold that passion yeah. at the same time. It's just kind of hard to juggle that. Yeah,
2: and it's nice now, too. My dad used to coach youth. That's all weekend. Yeah. Now it's we're coaching middle school, so it's just during the week. Uh, sometimes not even on friday so monday through thursday really so that's that's good for hunting season
1: yeah hopefully it works out for you that way but anyway the uh topic of interest this week um i did an episode um had a phone call with phil holcomb so if you guys would have remembered back from fall, um, I did a did an intro. Was talking about some of the the upcoming things, and I did an episode with Phil, and we had some issues with some audio quality and stuff like that. And we decided we weren't going to air this episode. But Phil's been somebody who reached out to me, and uh, we, we've you know, become pretty good friends. We're always call you know, texting back and forth and talking about white tails and whitetail hunting and he's been sending me some sheds from this past year, man. That guy's been putting some boot miles on shed hunting. But uh he uh we connected over uh, small properties talking about trying to manipulate small properties. Um he he, called, he you know, reached out to me after the episode I did about my, my big buck I shot here at my place. So that was, uh, that was kind of cool, neat connection. Um, but he's had a lot of success on his small property. Um, you know, he's has, uh, what we would consider, a, I guess a micro parcel. It's like 10 acres, I believe, but you know, we kind of pick his brain on just the evolution of that and kind of his thought process and, and making daylight activity and hunting opportunity happen on that property and what his philosophy is. And, you know, I've I've talked about this and Phil talks about it too. Like you can you have to calibrate your expectations. You know, if your expectation is you're gonna do anything to the property and you're gonna kill a giant, that's not really your expectation, but um or that's not a realistic expectation, but you know, realistic would be um can I keep a day keep daylight attraction on my property and potentially harvest the best deer in the area. You know, maybe the best deer in the area is is a as a two hundred year, hundred inch two year old, and I mean that's a that's a trophy a lot of places, you know. If you get lucky like me, the best deer in the area, of the year I killed him was a hundred and seventy inch deer, and then that that can happen. You just got to calibrate it with the right information. <coughs> but uh, yeah, Phil's uh, Phil's a, a just a guy with a ton of knowledge. You know, he's got some other other podcasts out with the habitat guys, and uh, he'll. He, I think he talks about that a little bit. But uh, we'll have the links in the description for that, but uh, I think it'll be something you might want to get out and, and start doing some habitat work on maybe get the chainsaw out. <laughs> but all right well uh we'll uh we'll, we'll tune into this episode, and uh, thanks for tuning in guys. So here with me today we got Phil Holcomb back on for hopefully a little bit of a better experience. Last time we tried this, we had some audio technicalities, which is uh what we were, what we were experiencing today. We we tried something different. It didn't work, but Phil, how are you? How you been, man?
3: I'm doing great, man. Um great to uh great to talk to you again and uh like uh like you said, hopefully uh we don't have any of the uh technical difficulties uh that we uh we had uh earlier
1: yeah this is a long time coming for sure and we've been we've been texting back and forth ever since throughout hunting season and through uh into shed season you were sending me some pretty nice shed antlers how many times did you get out this year
3: um <clears throat> kind of really only twice um and uh <laughs> i would say that probably um the two times that i went out specifically with that kind of in mind, I, I didn't pick anything up. Um, the, the three that I've found so far were like, uh, the first set I found, um, driving out of the road, up the road, out of my buddy's camp. And it comes up through a, a little, little patch of, uh, public land. And, um, still, we still had quite a bit of snow and we had a real icy two, three inch crust, like rock solid and I drove up through this one spot and I saw a pretty good trail worn down and I just stopped and I looked out the truck window and saw a pretty good track. And I thought, well, oh, I'll just get out and, uh, you know, take a look at that track, investigate it a little bit more. Cause there was a, there were, um, two pretty good bucks in that area that we were, uh, kind of trying to get dialed in on in the, in, in the fall. And, uh, so I'm, I see that, kind of goes up the hill a little bit up off the road there's a hemlock branch that came down in the ice storm and um, the deer were actually completely just stripping the hemlock needles off of that branch um like i said with that deep ice crust you know they they couldn't get to anything that was on the ground Mm -hmm. and uh pretty much anything that they could get to, like hemlock was, (laughs) was getting eaten pretty uh pretty hard so i saw the tracks going up there. I walked up to that and, um, was just kind of inspecting that area and, um, just another 10 or 15 yards up the hill, uh, borders, uh, the edge of a clear cut. And there's two flat spots that I've routinely seen deer bed on from the road. And it's only like 70 yards off the road. So I decided I better go up there and just take a quick look at those beds. Um, and, uh, as I got closest to the, one um flat spot you could see there was an old depression in the snow um and just the very tips of the tines were sticking up out of it laying in the middle of the bed and uh i basically knew i i there was no way i could just pick it up i was gonna have to um excavate it (laughs) so i just happened to happen to look over to my right and the other bedding depression had um basically the G three and the tip of the main beam were sticking up out and it was a match set. So um fortunately being close to the truck went back down and uh um I had my saw kit in the back and I always have a, a small hatchet in there. So went up back up with the hatchet and dug the dug both those sheds out and it turned out to be um match set from one of the two bucks in that in that area that we were kind of trying to, uh, get some intel on. Um, and, uh, so that wasn't even really a shed hunt. I mean, I was literally just looking at deer tracks and deer sign and not really expecting much of anything. And then, um, the other one was in the same area off of the same road, um, opposite side of the road, probably 125 yards away from that where that match set was laying, uh, we had a camera down there, and I had decided, well, I'm going to go down and pull that camera. Um, and uh, I wanted to see if the buck that I had just picked up the match set from had, you know, been uh, active in the area of that camera. And so I walked down, and I, I pulled the camera, and I was walking back up to the truck and just happened to look over. And in between these two giant hemlocks on the edge of another cut, um was laying a nice five point side and that was from the uh, you know the second of the the two bucks that we had kind of been looking for so that was pretty cool um i'll take them anyway i can get them even if i'm not technically looking for them and then of course finding those three you know made me feel like i had to get out and go take a look uh in some other places and and of course you know when you put the time in like that and you end up uh you know coming up empty-handed
2: <laughs> yeah I've never
1: spent but that I did find
3: ter- some yeah
1: good I've never spent that terrible much time shed hunting with the, the best shed I found this year I was driving a side-by-side side in a food plot and there it laid it's just the way it, it works <laughs> but that sounds like pieces yeah. out of the puzzle for a for a future podcast episode on somebody shows what that sounds like yeah I
3: hope so I I really hope so I think there's um uh there's there's definitely two really good uh targets uh that definitely you know made it through uh through the season and um they look location of the sheds and then the the intel that was on that camera um and uh uh just kind of knowing that particular area i think we i think i know what why we couldn't close the deal um this past fall um Basically, they were betting, uh, at least the one buck was, was betting a little bit closer than I really thought that he was. And I'm pretty sure he was uh, aware of our our access. So, uh, I already kind of have an idea for how to uh, make that not be the case. And um, I'm going to get a camera positioned where I think will give me a little better intel on whether or not that deer is using um there's like a a set of like three beds that i found in a in like a probably less than a quarter of an acre area in this cut and i think that that's those are three three beds that three of the beds that that deer uses and i think i got an idea the type of conditions he might be using it on so yeah hopefully it's something uh something that works out um now will and, that be a
1: location you'd be able to use a cell camera or are you still in a position where no cell service is going to happen in those locations
3: yeah unfortunately there is no cell service uh in that area um because if there were i i actually would probably push it a little bit closer to the the bed that's the it would be the closest bed to um my anticipated access route so um, that way, I could kind of tell, get a time frame um, on, you know, when that deer is moving out of that bedding area, uh, and what direction he's specifically exiting the bedding area. Because I think that that was uh, kind of one of the key factors that that didn't give us a, a good chance. I uh, one of my one of my buddies at camp. I was really trying to get them the ability to get in position on this deer last year um and uh it's more or less going to be the same same format this year i think um it would be a good good opportunity for him um to be able to to capitalize on and while i'm kind of focusing my my efforts on some other places so
1: hey no doubt no doubt now you had a I mean, like i said I, I keep us updated with that. I think that's an awesome setup now you had a pretty good hunting season this past year. I saw killed a pretty nice pretty nice buck with your bow uh sent me a picture you you got a doe in the late season with the flint lock, and I think you were able to take the kids out uh I mean cue us in a little bit on how how that went this past year
3: yeah this uh this fall was was pretty good uh pretty good one for sure um probably the the biggest, uh, uh, biggest harvest was, uh, my son was able to, to get his first deer. Um, and, uh, so that was, you know, that was huge. That was awesome. Uh, just an unreal experience. Um, I literally have never, um, never been impacted by adrenaline. Um, like, like I did in that particular instance. I'm, um, you know, obviously we all get we we all get the adrenaline dump, and that's a big part of why we do what we do but um <laughs> no. for the most part, I've been fortunate enough over the years to be able to keep myself fairly you know in control <laughs> and uh when it looked like we were gonna get an opportunity and Jackson was gonna get an opportunity at this tier um I actually started to feel like I was like like I was cross-eyed. I could not focus my vision. I, I couldn't do it. And, <laughs> and I, my heart, I swear that deer could hear my, my heart beating and I, I just erratic breath. And like, I had very little control over like fine motor skills, my digits, my hands and stuff. Um, Like I've never, it took me a long time to compose myself after he made the shot. Like (laughs) how old is Where I felt like he's eight. He had just, just, just about turned eight, just before his eighth birthday is when he, he got, uh, got to shoot that deer. So that was, um, yeah, it was pretty, it's pretty
1: wild. Highlight of the season, regardless what happened after that, right?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'm really looking forward to this coming season, but um no and then I was I was fortunate enough to shoot a nice buck in uh in archery season uh November 4th uh and then um I yeah I was able to get a a doe with the flintlock um which is my new kind of obsession I I would think I I can call it that uh flintlock hunting just I don't know why but it's it's the past couple years has been like kind of actually what I look forward to the most in in deer season is there's just something about january um you know cold snow um big woods tracking you know still hunting and using a firearm such as a flintlock where you know it's just it's they're just they're just super cool weapons they're they're fun to shoot um you know you, you do have that that uh that nagging kind of uh anxiety of is it really going to go off <laughs> um but uh you know you spend enough time shooting them and and learning the, the the weapon and learning you know what conditions are going to possibly impact your ignition and stuff like that you, you start to get pretty well dialed in and and you can figure out like you know, how to how to offset those things and, and do the right things to, to make right. that gun go off as as fast as possible. It's, a whole, and, it's um, a whole
1: different set of variables. I mean, it's been a close second for me, too. I mean, I, I've been a bow hunting fanatic my whole life, but, I mean, that flintlock season, there's there's something special. And most people, like, if you're not from Pennsylvania and then you see us going out in the late season and here we can only use a flintlock muzzleloader season, like, most people are like, what kind of stupid rule is that? But it's one of the things It's like... <laughs> don't knock it until you try it it is a blast yeah. it is absolutely a blast
3: it is and like <clears throat> i've been i've been promoting it to uh, to like anybody in in my you know within my circle of friends and stuff that anyone that doesn't have a flintlock or you know hasn't tried it i'm i'm like all about like let's it, c- come on up shoot shoot them a couple of times you know And once you do that, you're going to be like, wow, that actually, that was pretty cool. And then you're going to want to, you know, actually, you know, get into it and, you know, put the effort in. And and then, like you said, that, that season is just, there's something, there is just something about it. Um, you know, after it's hard, there's obviously the standing stock has been reduced by, you know, all the previous hunting pressure, um, So there's just, there's literally just fewer deer on the landscape at that point in time in the year. The ones that are left are generally pretty hardwired to, you know, wound for sound and, and not looking to, uh, um, give you too many opportunities. Um, you know, it's cold, it's really cold. (laughs) You you quite often have a lot of snow. Um, and, uh, the deer are just, you know, kind of working into that winter pattern, and, and, um, you know, food is super important, cover is super important, and, um, me, I just, I just like to get into, get into areas that, uh, look like they, they have the habitat that would, um, be attractive, and then get in there, find the sign, find tracks, still hunt, or literally, actually track, um, and, uh, it's amazing, like, it's just, I think, um, honestly, since I started to really hunt the flintlock season and I really started to sharpen and and hone a lot of, um, a lot of valuable hunting skills and woodsmanship skills that, um, I just hadn't really, you know, put to the, put to the test, um, previously or, or at least not as often. And, and, um, I think, I think I really kind of have grown as a, uh, as a deer hunter, um, you know, in the, in the past couple of years, uh, in, in, in terms of those types of situations.
1: Yeah, without a doubt. Um, it's, it's generally for me, it's a little bit more of a relaxing hunting season. And I say that because normally in the past few years, I've had a buck tag filled and I, I, I mean, if you ask my wife, I become like more human after I fill my buck tag (laughs) And then this (laughs) year when that didn't happen, I was even less human in flintlock season because I was driving hard after like one specific deer and just didn't happen because that's the way it goes, um, unfortunately. But, you know, it it is a great time, but it's a great way to get out. It's a great way to scout. It's like getting getting late season scouting. You're still getting that. Um, you're still getting that sign and that vibe of what the deer were doing in October, November, December, and you can relate it well. But it's an opportunity to usually just put boots on the ground, explore new territory, and yeah, without a doubt, it's uh, it's clearly a missed opportunity for a lot of people. Anybody who uh, who engages in that season. They uh, they know what we're talking about, but so I want to I want to yeah. shift gears yep. a little bit and kind of in, you know kind of sure. talk the meat and potatoes of what we were actually wanted to, to discuss today. So you know back in the beginning of the year here we started talking about changing some stuff on private land and really trying to have an impact on your property if you're not seeing the quality results that you want to see you know whatever your goals are and uh, you know we're we're generally talking on small properties we're talking about, you know, those 40, 50, 100-acre parcels that, you know, most people would think, you know, I can't have a big enough impact to reach the goals I want to. And, you know, I and and a lot of the guests that I had speak over those topics, you know, we argued that you could make a difference, and here's how to apply those. And, uh, you know, you uh, for the, the backstory for, for you that, you know, if nobody else would, would know this, that's listening is, you know, you hunt some big woods tracks and you've hunted some other private land, but you've kind of indulged in really micromanaging what we would consider like a micro parcel. Um, and, and you know, that's, that's just been something you've really done well at on your own property. And, uh, you know, if anybody, is, is in disbelief of small properties and and making positive things happen, you know, talk to Phil because he's experienced (laughs) those positive things from the beginning. So, I mean, you, you killed your buck this year on your property and, uh, you killed some other dandies there. So, I mean, let's just break this down on a, on a slow point. I mean, how big is this property and like how have you dissected or or what's your thought process in a micro track to dissect it and have some type of lasting influence throughout hunting season
3: yeah um so my my property is uh it's less than nine acres (laughs) so it's um you know it's not it's not very big in in most uh scenarios most terms of uh of what people would think of and with, uh, with hunting property. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's just, it, it, it was a, uh, a fairly long process to, to kind of get to where it is now it took a lot of, you know, a lot of trial and error, a lot of learning. Um, and, uh, but it's, you know, it, it's completely possible, um, to, you know, really focus on, um you know having the quality of hunting experience um that you're looking for um you know obviously it has to be tempered by reality um you know what what the reality of the system you know what what's happening on the ground where the property is exactly how big it is exactly how it lays out how it fits into the into the surrounding um uh kind of neighborhood if you will. and, uh, you know, there's, there's just, as long as you, you, you keep it, you know, realistic, uh, you, you set realistic goals, um, but you also, um, you know, remain flexible and able to pivot and make changes, um, you know, and, and be willing to, to kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh as Steve Bartilla always put it, it was, uh, rigidly flexible, um, just uh be able to to you know recognize things um and make changes and not just uh you know be full commit to the to the uh to the plan if it's if it's not realistic you know
1: Yeah, Um, the the whole goal and uh, access thing for sure like goals like you said that's the best thing have a realistic goal and with those micro tracks, having that mindset that you're just going to hold every deer or the best deer, you're going to have the biggest <laughs> buck in the neighborhood, that's unrealistic. And I, I think, you know, that's what we talked about in the, the, the beginning here was scaling back our goals. But I, I truly don't believe that it's unrealistic to say on a property that size, you can hold daylight attraction of the best buck in the neighborhood at some point in the season.
3: Oh, absolutely. Um, You know, and and like I was saying about, um, you know, to me, the biggest, aside from having realistic goals and expectations, um, the next thing is uh, establishing, like, where your property fits into the kind of the the neighborhood of the local deer, right? Kind of being able to figure out um, what's going on in the multiple layers of property, uh, beyond your borders. Right. Um, and, and realizing that all of those things fit together. Um, y- you can't just be sole focused inside that box, inside your, your, your border lines. Um, because like you're saying some you know, <laughs> y- you're, you're most likely not going to, um, you know, house, uh, you know, uh, a single buck, uh, within, you know, the confines of your micro property and, and be able to hunt, uh, for that buck all the time, you know, like you got to have, um, access, you got to understand, uh, how to build those layers of attraction, um, that basically build that pattern, establish that pattern of, um daylight attraction during hunting season um you know and that, and that's another important distinction i think is is um habitat manipulation um for hunting purposes and um you know overall habitat improvement um you know there's there's kind of a sliding scale there uh it doesn't have to be all one or the other um but when you're talking about a small property and you're specifically interested in hunting, um, you know, you, you're, you're going to kind of, uh, address, um, you know, the needs, uh, of, of the hunting property first. Um, and then in doing that, you know, you can kind of start to address some other, um, you know, some other habitat, uh, improvement issues, like say, uh, non-native invasive control or non quote unquote target species, um, you know, pollinators, this, that, there's a whole, whole other world that can be, you know, <laughs> that can be brought into it. But if you're, if your main goal is hunting, um, you know, that's really, that's really what you're looking to establish is a huntable pattern of movement, which would be obviously during the daylight, during hunting season, and for as long as possible throughout the hunting season, um, that's really kind of where it where it where it it needs to be focused. And in some instances, that could be kind of centered around food. In other instances, that could be centered around bedding cover or security cover. Um, in other instances, it can be a blend of both. Um, but that's where that's where it needs to be figured out. Um,
1: if you don't mind, let me, let's dissect that a little bit before we get any further. So you talked about kind of like looking at the con- the confines of your neighborhood and, and not being confined to just your parcel. You're talking about zooming out and looking at that. So, you know, without going into too much detail about your own parcel and kind of, you know, giving us the secrets, can, can you give us like an example when you're zooming out and where you see fitting that mold or where that lowest hole in the bucket necessarily is in a neighborhood like what is your mind going through when you're dissecting that general area and then and then implementing that specific practice or whatever it is on a micro track
3: yeah i'm i'm basically just looking to figure out um you know as it is without anything being done where are deer living like where are they where are they Betting and where are they feeding and how are they most likely moving you know and, and again a lot of this is going to be purely speculation based off of e-scouting and or um you know possibly actual observation by driving around where you can you know drive around and see in glass fields if you have fields and stuff like that um any number of methods of of observation um you know, in some cases, uh, uh, a lot of neighbors are pretty cooperative anyway. I mean, um, you know, I think too often we have maybe too much of a focus on antagonistic relationship between neighbors, um, but I think a lot of times um, there's you know opportunities there, or there already is a good you know standing trusting relationship, and you know some neighbors. Sure, they they and their family might hunt their property, but they might not really mind if you wanted to go shed hunting or, you know, scouting or whatever it is, you know. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of ways to kind of develop uh, a feel for um, what's going on, how the, how the local deer are kind of relating to the landscape, um, not only directly on your property, but around it. And from there you can kind of try to assess um what are some holes in the lowest some like what's the lowest hole like it, it, are, is your property kind of amongst bedding cover already um if so um you know is it dough bedding um is it maybe even an area where bucks are spending time you know like starting to figure out where that fits um i think a lot of times Um, where a lot of micro properties end up kind of fitting is being attractive to a doe family group or multiple doe family groups and then utilizing that um, to basically, um, you know, be a a rut-focused hunting location. Um, I think that that's kind of like lowest hanging fruit for most small properties. Right. Probably um, the kind of the easiest um kind of um manipulation out of all of it to to kind of do um and then so there you know in that particular you know hypothetical what you're really looking to do is find a way to get does onto the property during daylight during the hunting season and then wait for um the bucks to start to show up to check those does you know chase them seek them breed them whatever um for the most part about mid-october you know most people probably heard a million times about mid-october in that type of scenario there's going to be some bucks that are going to start showing up uh signs start gonna you know start to be laid uh you start seeing the rubs and the scrapes and things like that um and um, so, <clears throat> you know, you, you're just starting to, to kind of like suck in the, the, the neighborhood bucks. And then the other thing that's great about it too, is, you know, maybe the first couple of years, it's, it might be kind of sporadic, but as, um, you build that property, um, the attraction, uh, and holding those dough groups, um, and it becomes generational, um, that, that local deer herd adapts to that. And it's like those local bucks know that that place exists and that's, um, you know, a place to keep an eye on. That's a place to go to, to start, you know, checking scrapes, making scrapes. Um, you know, obviously one of the attractions that you really can kind of use to your advantage is a mock scrape um, and with the goal of creating a community scrape. Um, You know, the traditional scrape that is used by both sexes and all age classes all year around. Um, Those places become those hubs of activity um, and and they really become the focus of of, of Bucks. Um, You know, it's the place where they come to check in. You know, I have a couple of, I have two main... Big scrapes on my property that I made. Um, one is, I want to say this is the tenth year. Um, so it's it's multi generational. It's been there a long time, and it's really been built into the like to the kind of collective, <laughs> uh, you know, herd um, and the and the doe mm-hmm. family groups that are constantly in the area. They're always using it. They're always utilizing the licking branches. Um, and it became it's now a place where um generally speaking most bucks in the area are aware of it they they have encountered it you know multiple times and you start to get into the bucks that were you know talking in the older age classes chances are they have three you know two three years of you know utilizing that scrape and um and knowing about what time of year you know (laughs) So usually about mid-October, you get it, you you know start to get them to, to come to that scrape. It may not be daylight yet, but as you creep closer to the end of the month, it starts to get um, to be a daylight attraction. Um, but uh, that kind of dovetails into um, you know the rest of it. Uh, all the other uh, it's usually like layers
1: of attraction. Right, um, right, right. I think a lot. Yeah. So, you, hey, so just to recap, make sure I got you. So you're really talking about creating a conditional use of that property through all sorts of attractions. You know, I think it's pretty much expected that we talk about food, we talk about cover and we talk about direction and stuff and mock scripts, but really your importance you're seeing is that conditional use of that property on a, on a, on a regular basis. Correct.
3: Yep. And, and I always, I, like I said, it, it, I think it. It starts it starts with um you know, with that with that hunting focused um you know, manipulation and, and that's gonna be, you know, that fall winter attraction. But
1: Yeah, dive into that it, for especially, a
3: second. Especially in the in the instance of if you're trying to basically create a place where the does are going to be uh when the bucks are interested in the does. Um you can you know, does in, in, in most places and in a lot of places, the does don't, their home ranges are pretty small. So chances are if they're going to be there in the fall and winter, they're also going to be there in the spring and summer. So sometimes um, it's, it's really not a bad idea to end up working your way beyond the fall and winter attraction to making other improvements that support um, spring and summer attraction. Um, because you might as well have that, um, you know, have your property be that focal point of a local doe group or two. Um, that's just basically only going to help you out in the long run when you're talking about hunting focused, you know, small properties. So, um, but, uh, you know, in, in my particular instance, um, basically a small, uh, yet highly attractive food plot with good security cover um, built around it with uh, availability of um, desired uh, natural browse um, and other natural forages um, and uh, and creating patterns of movement um, that are uh, able to be um capitalized on um from a hunting standpoint um is really what it it kind of boils down to so it's not a matter of just throwing a food plot um wherever it's most convenient you know thinking about where it's located in terms of you being able to have access uh to be able to hunt it um yeah, you're not talking it. about
1: cookie-cutter situations. You're really talking about manipulating it to what the landscape is and, and coupling that with a good hunting strategy.
3: Exactly. And, you know, I think um, you know, access, which, you know, you hear a lot, and there's a reason why. It's it's extremely important. Uh, but not only access, but once you get into your stand, um, being able to remain undetected. Um that's that's a key thing so really paying attention to to wind and thermals um and where the deer are coming from and where they're you're expecting them to go um where the manipulation part comes in um say they're bedded off the property which isn't a terrible thing i know a lot of people might think oh well you know i want to i want to you know attract and hold. So I got to have the bedding on my property. Sometimes you don't want that from an access and a huntability standpoint. Um, you, if they're bedded, um, on your property, and uh, you, it may provide access issues, uh, that may make it harder to get in and out undetected or remain on stand, you know, undetected. So, right. um, you, it may be advantageous, if they're bedded off property, what that gives you the ability to then do is influence and manipulate how they enter your property and then how they move through it and then how they exit it. In doing so, with keeping your access and your, your hunting location in mind, right? So, um, in wooded scenarios, uh, doing things like, I call it like a, like a, a hopper or a collection a collection trail. So at the, uh, at the point where I'm trying to, um, move deer into the property further, um, I may be using hinge cutting and conventionally felling trees and using the tops and the, um, you know, the, the trunks, um, and, uh, and hinge cuts and everything else to create, you know, think of, um, you know, your traditional funnel or a hopper, it's wide at the top and then it narrows down. Right. Right. So I want to collect them into that widest part and then start to narrow it down. Um, and I'm not talking like, you know, you can't narrow it down to a, you know, um, like a cattle chute or something like that just doesn't work. But if it's, you start it, you know, it's 50, 60 yards wide at its, at the wide end, you know, and it's just slowly tapering down to where it's maybe 20 yards and it's always suggestive. It's not a barricade. It is not an inescapable, um, you know, route. You got to give them the ability to escape. Um, you got to give them that feeling that they can, they can maneuver and get out of that, even though it feel, you know, it might be getting tighter might be, you know, they might be feeling like they're getting tightened down as long as they feel like they can get out of it. They're way more likely to use it. So, um, you know, that might really include, uh, when, when felling trees or hinge cutting doing so in a way that's perpendicular to the line, the generalized line of travel so that there's gaps, um, that they can navigate out of, um, So that's something I would use in a transition from like a, you know, forested scenario heading towards, um, you know, maybe a field, uh, field edge or an old, old field type habitat, early successional habitat, um, coming into that transition. And then, um, maybe that's a opportunity for, you know, a food plot focal point, laying that food plot out so that, um, it promotes uh you know the uh, the deer feeling safe um in daylight hours uh having good security cover breaking up the visual um like sight lines of the deer so they can see far just far enough but not like they can stand in one corner and visually scan the entire field um you know just um moving basically the, 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 idea of just moving, collecting the deer from, um, from somewhere else and then, uh, kind of steering them into where, you know, where you want or where's most advantageous to you from a hunting standpoint, giving them a focal point, attraction uh, traction that puts them in front of you, um, for long enough, um, to be able to make an assessment and make a shot if, if need be. Right. Um, and then using things to position them, um, to, to make the shot, you know, you can set your mock scrapes up your water holes, um, things like that to put them in a position for you to make a really good slam dunk high percentage shot. Um, the same, the same can also be said with, with those, um, those kind of collection trails. Um, you can use them Um, set up on them to get those high percentage shots by strategically leaving certain trees or um, high hinging or whatever where the deer goes behind something gives you the opportunity to get drawn and when they come out the other side they're you know right there broadside Um, all the while using the kind of the angle of the of the collection trail or the steering trail to also help keep the deer's vision kind of focused away from your stand location. Um, doing things like that, I think really like the small details, uh, of the, of the hunting strategy, uh, and the manipulations are the ones that kill the deer, right? Because you could do all of that, um, and and say, not have the ability to not kept a tree or some brush to give you the opportunity to get drawn. And, but you have everything else and it works exactly perfectly until you go to get drawn and you get busted. Right. Right. So those, those little details are the ones that are, are the ones that kill. Um, but, uh, you know, that <clears throat> those are all, you know, some fine tuning things that, you know, take, uh, took some time. I mean, it took a lot of getting busted <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, so, um, And then I think it's also just important is important to direct them off the property where you want, you know, where I, I I don't, I get, I don't necessarily like to say where you want, make them do what you want because it's not necessarily, that's not necessarily how it works. Right. It's more like I'm trying to, to, to um, suggest, make it suggest, make it suggestive enough that this is and and it's the, it, the way it's laid out is just the way that the deer naturally unpressured are just more than likely going to, to do that. And it's, and it's in a way that's the most advantageous, um, you know, for, for the hunter. Um, right. <clears throat> so
1: you're talking so I about, I think of it as like a, Go yeah, I, 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 sorry about that. If you got a thought there, keep going. I was just going to say, you're really talking about, being, uh, using subtle transitions and, and multiple things. So you're talking about, you know, we talked about hinging trees and directionally funneling down. You talked about, um, anything you would typically hear on a property improvement and a food plot and a water hole and a mock scrape, but you're really talking about funneling those into the most opportune location and you're what you're doing is you're trying to keep them into that daylight area, and your goal is to steer them in the direction that you want them to go, hopefully it's in an after dark situation or it's at a time where they'll be a little bit more safe but you're you're at least giving the most opportune location for deer to funnel past you and it's it's not a cookie cutter situation; you're really talking about finding that layout ahead of time and and gradually making those manipulations
3: yeah I- exactly and you know um i personally i'm I'm a huge fan of observation um, of learning of and and experimenting um, i I don't like to say these are all the things you know you have to do this you have to use this particular technique you have to plant this particular species you know you have to, like that just doesn't work. Like it's not going to, you can't, it won't always translate to the next property, to the next, you know, to your neighbors, let alone from your property to your, to your neighbors, to three counties away, to the Midwest, to the North, you know, sure. Right. Those absolutes, those absolutes don't always, it's, it's not about the specifics. And I get, I get that a lot. Um, you know, people who, who've reached out and have questions and stuff, and I, I, that you know I, I i like to help people um you know where i can and i get I, I, quite often i get a lot of questions that are basically looking for specific like they want you know a, a road map you know a you know turn here make a left here you know go three miles make a right merge onto the highway you know and then you end up at your destination and it's it's not always that easy um there, there it isn't a matter isn't always a matter of just, you know, reading uh, off of a recipe. Sometimes you gotta, you gotta simmer some things and smell it. And, uh, you know, just see how things go together, try it, you know, see what works best and then try to replicate it. Um, you know, based, based off of the, um, the fundamentals or the principles underneath things like, like I said, a steering or collecting, collecting trail. Well, I gave the, the, um, hypothetical of in a wooded situation of using a chainsaw to manipulate it to make that kind of collection trail well say you have um you know a several acre field of uh overgrown brush uh and goldenrod um and not really any trees well you can get yourself a weed whacker a brush hog um Me personally, I really like those little, those DR walk behind, um, brush cutters. Mm -hmm. Um, and you can cut trails through that stuff and the deer will use them. And does that mean that that's the only way they can walk across the property? No, but nine times out of 10, those deer being the path of least resistant type creatures that they are, are going to take that mode trail. Um, and the reason why I bring up the DR walk behind, like the brush head, the brush cutting head on the, the it's an older 12 horsepower, uh, 12, and a half, 12 and a half horsepower unit. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems to be like the perfect width. <laughs> it's like, tw- I think it's 28 inches is what the the, the cutting head on that okay. is. Okay. And I feel like you go a little bit wider, it's not quite, it doesn't quite have the same effect. You basically want it to be, everybody has walked into an old overgrown field like that and seen a deer trail go through it, right? Like a a worn, a well-worn trail. Um, It's not the size of a, you know, a six foot or a three foot or even a four, you know, a four foot bush hog, you know, um, rotary mower or something like that. You're just basically trying to make it as obvious and easy as possible without it being um, a road. (laughs)
1: Yeah, and like mature bucks are a perfect example of that because like a mature buck, I've seen some mature bucks where you have like the the greatest path of least resistance and they'll walk right down the middle of it. Then I've also seen mature bucks (laughs) that like it, they just won't use that path of least resistance, whether that's like an old two track logging road in a, in a wooded situation or that mode path. Like there's something to be said about that feeling of security where they can feel the brush hit against their legs and the weeds and the, you know, everything about that. And you're doing it in a more subtle way. That's a little bit more natural. And another way I've, I've seen that same thing used is just like with a backpack sprayer and just killing the vegetation with one spray with, you know kind of uh, get that same kind of feel
3: yeah and for a while i was doing i was actually i was mow i would be mowing like it mowing the trails in like july and then um following up with the backpack sprayer and and then you know um just spraying it off and then not having to worry about a second mowing um but honestly i've it, it just you know time Time being what it is, you know, at at some point in time, one year, I didn't have time to follow up with a second (laughs) spraying and I didn't have time to mow when I normally would have. I mowed a little bit later and it made no difference, Right. Um, but I know some, there's some people that are more advocate of mowing and spraying and keeping those trails, like really kind of like groomed and maintained, which I totally get but I don't think that it's completely necessary. Um, and also I, I, like I said, I'm more or less just trying to make it, um, it, when you mow it in like late July, even, um, even into mid August, by the time, um, the middle of October comes around, it does not look like an overly ob- obvious mowed trail, but it's an obvious trail, like, but you don't, you know what I mean? To a to a, a buck who's just walking onto the property the first for the first time in a year, you know, or maybe this first time ever, it it's not like something that is gonna be so alarming or anything like that. Um and uh yeah, I, 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 I like to use uh mode, you know, mode trails um to kinda direct entry and exit into food plots that are situated in in kind of early successional habitat Um, and you know i i what i was going to say earlier one of the kind of concepts i I really like the way i try to think of it is like um it's kind of like a conveyor um you know with with the ability to to press pause or hit the stop button for (laughs) a few seconds but it the way ideally that it works is You don't end up with a bunch of deer spending a whole lot of time milling around you. Um, That's where it's just upping your chance of being detected. Um, It's just moving them through uh, the area in a way that gives you the potential for multiple opportunities. Um, You know, in the food pot, eventually deer are going to, if you're going to sit on the plot versus um you know uh the the kind of the the transitions to the plot because i personally i i hunt over uh i hunt over a, a, a small kill plot um and it's i have no problem whatsoever but a lot of that has to do with um the stand location the access to it and the combination of prevailing wind and thermals and only hunting it on perfect conditions. Um but sometimes um the wind still does weird little things. Um that you may have a perfectly forecasted, you know, northwest 11 miles an hour uh in the afternoon, you've got a rising thermal coming up the hill, the two of them are colliding. Eventually the um, you know, the prevailing takes over and blows your scent stream way out over the valley, you know, out behind you, uh, essentially making you undetected, undetectable by scent. Right. Um, but every now and then that prevailing wind slacks out and, uh, that thermal, um,
2: you know, is
3: just changing in, um, in strength as the sun is moving across the face of the hillside below you, you know what I mean? Right. You get that thing, that, just the little fluke thing and it pushes that scent out. That's why I don't want to necessarily promote having them spending a whole lot of time right in on top of me, because those are the stupid little things that bust you, you know? So right. if it's, uh, you know, can be, th- think of like a kind of like a conveyor that is deer getting on at one end and kind of being moved through at a nice pace to the other end and then they're gone. <laughs> if they're not one, you're going to shoot. Um, you know, they never know that, you know, you were in their world. So I can relate um, to that greatly.
1: And- <laughs> Yeah, I can. I can relate yeah. to that greatly. We we talk about uh, sitting on food plots. You know, when I when we first started, you know, tinkering and learning in in land management and trying to manipulate it for a good hunt, sitting on food plots. I mean, it just seemed like why wouldn't you want to sit at your food plots? You're attracting deer, and for that very reason, deer stop, and the wind does exactly what you described, and then you eventually, if it's a non-target deer, you alert the entire heard and you know those camera <laughs> pictures that you had rolling in rolling in of mature buck coming there in daylight and then all of a sudden you don't see them and you you scratch your head well I guess they weren't there that night not exactly how that works and that's a huge concept and I, I think that's kind of where I'd like to s- steer this conversation last before we let it go is you know you talked about steering deer and all these great things and how to the, the, these wonderful concepts of moving them through this micro track um why don't you talk a little bit in your thought process when it comes to, number one, the timing of the hunt, and number two, the overall um, strategy of pressure. Because, you know, let's, let's stick with that thought of our goal. I, you know, you and I, our goal would probably be similar in that we want to try to have an opportunity at one of the best bucks in the neighborhood. And a lot of people think, okay, you do all those things you just talked about, Phil but I'm still hunting my property and I'm not having those success stories. And a lot of the time, in my opinion, it comes down to how much are you hunting and is the timing correct? So just touch a little bit about, you know, what's going on in your mind with this micro track.
3: Yeah. um, So, you know, I I look at it and we were talking earlier, you know, you've got your you know kind of your quantitative analysis and your qualitative analysis so um if you're gonna want to uh routinely kind of target having an opportunity at the kind of the upper end of bucks in your neighborhood in terms of age we'll just go with that um then um you kind of have to focus on the the, Um, qualitative more than the quantitative um you want to um you want to have an idea of what um what you can and can't get away with um and still produce the results so um from a timing standpoint um you know i'm fortunate in that um my place uh I can hunt mornings and evenings and all days. Now I have to time them to what's going on with the deer herd locally. Um, I think it's a, a, my, my particular situation is a little bit is kind of standard issue for a a lot of the basic kind of, uh, you know, um, things that you, you kind of hear brought up, uh, through the beginning part of the of the season, evenings, afternoons, evenings are the hunt timing of choice. Um, as we transition to, um, you know, the end of October, uh, the the possibility for a morning sit starts to become a reality. Um, and then as we move into um, the first couple of days first week in November, um, morning is totally an option and all day starts to become, uh, much more of like what is, um, preferable. Um, and, uh, so it just seems to be that, that earlier part, uh, mid, mid through late, you know, beginning of late October, um, those evenings seem to be the highest quality uh sit um and then basically as the as october ends um the mornings start to see some really good activity um daylight you know up to an hour or two um you know into the into the the into the first you know hour or two of day um and then, as it's you know November and basically the seeking intensifies and starts to kind of transition more to the chasing phase, um, it, it becomes uh, a lot easier to get away with some things that maybe you couldn't have, you know, just a week earlier. Um, you know, just really paying attention to the focus of the of the animals. I mean, it's it's kind of some some basic rut hunting you know strategy um tied into it is just just knowing that when you know when the bucks are when the when the younger bucks are really kind of starting to pester the does a lot a lot of times um the does also um their focus shifts they're a little more um susceptible to not paying attention to like their security because they're they're being harassed so much that they are very much focused on what the bucks are doing and where they are you know what their uh what their posture is when they encounter them um and then as it you know you start to get some of the bigger deer up and moving um the the they themselves have started to kind of let their guard down a little bit um and the does are kind of still you know on edge and then when you get into like that full-blown chasing um you can get away with a lot more um and and then of course you start to move into more of the actual breeding phase of the rut and quite honestly i think um i think that there's probably some of the best opportunities for some of the biggest and most mature bucks are, are during the lockdown. Um, I think that quite often those deer tend to segregate, um, or separate, uh, a a hot doe and they really want to move her away from every, uh, from all the other deer. They, they just want to be, they just want to be alone with their doe. And, I think that their testosterone level is so high that in a lot of cases, as long as that doe doesn't spook, like you can make moves on that buck and that buck can literally see you or, or detect your movement or something. And he's so wound up that he's thinking it's just basically another, uh, you know, another buck, another deer, um, that quite often that, Their their reaction is to stand their ground or to confront. But once that doe figures out what's going on and she she takes off, he's going with her. You know what I mean? But I feel like a lot of those big bucks they get and, and the places that they take those does are like just they don't they're not necessarily random. They seem random. You'll see them in crazy places, but they're there for a reason because they know that that's an area that they're not going to or they feel that they're not going to get pestered by other deer and so um every now and then you can get fortunate enough to have that scenario kind of play out on your on your property with the right you know with having habitat that's kind of supports that um you know you hear you know a lot about you know those random little brushy ditches out in the middle of a field that's wide open for hundreds of acres around it. And that's where they are, you know, right. um, you know, this year, I think it was November. Yeah, it was, it was November 13th. Um, I actually had to work, uh, night shift. I was coming home that morning and I was thinking to myself, this is, it's, it's interesting because all I saw for most of my ride home were immature bucks doing the walk doing, doing the walk around where they're just like, you know, have that frantic look on their face. Like, where'd everybody go? (laughs) You know, where, where all the, you know, where'd all the ladies go, you know? And, um, and I was thinking to myself, they're, they're locked down. There's a lot. uh, This is a a peak breeding date. Um, I didn't see any does. I only saw immature bucks for most of the ride, but then (laughs) right towards the end of the end of the ride home, I saw um, two of the biggest bucks I saw last year uh, with does pinned down practically on top of the road. And th- they allowed me to basically drive by them multiple times, you know, with my head out the window, you know, gawking, like, you know, oh. you know, <laughs> and, and they did not just turn and run. You know what I mean? They stood there and they were between me in a truck and the doe and stood there like standing their ground you know and so i i think that in that peak breeding phase there's actually some pretty good opportunities there um the the hardest part would be you know i don't think you can really manage a plan for that um you know because it 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 does have a certain level of randomness i i think uh you know i think um Maybe there's a possibility there where, um, a certain doe group, you know, lives in a certain area and it's quite possible that there's little pockets of, of, you know, type that type of cover nearby to where those does live that a buck or bucks will end up pushing a doe to. But I, you know, year in and year out, it's, you know, a place where a buck at the right time, you know, but you have no way of really like, other than, you know, from like November 10th through like November 17th or something like literally being in that tree the entire time, you
2: know. <laughs> like, right.
3: yeah, I don't think you can really really um manage for that particular scenario, but it's just a um uh, you know, an observation I've I've had on mature bucks in terms of timing um uh killing them, but um back, you know, I digress. <laughs> uh I think the timing for the small property is extremely critical. Um, understanding it is, you know, um, gonna, is going to be the make or break. Um, if it's, uh, if it's the type of scenario where you're really, um, kind of focusing that rut hunting, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm basically, you know, gonna, gonna, you know, say pretty much what everybody already knows. I mean, it's, it's the rut. Um, you're hunting, you know, you should be hunting where the does are and the bucks are going to be there. And it's a matter of spending the time. Um, so, you know, there's a certain element of that, but, um, you know, that's, that's really kind of the gist is, is just understanding using trail cameras. Um, you know, I think people rely on trail cameras too much, but I also think that they do, um, when you, when you kind of step back from it, and step back from them and you just understand it and, and, um, kind of understand that it's, it's data to be observed. It's not, um, a way to like try to, um, necessarily come up with a formula for a game plan to kill a, you know, uh, kill a deer or something. Like, I think you just, you start to keep track of those dates, um, that you're seeing historically, you, you start to keep track of the the weather um and uh other conditions maybe wind direction stuff like that and you start to build a picture of seems like you know for several years now in this three-day window um you know uh, with a as long as there's a west wind and it's cold or colder than the preceding days this three four five day whatever window that seems to be when i need to be there well guess what that's
1: when you need to be there. <laughs> yeah. Without a doubt. You know? So there's definitely a lot of things I take away from this. Number, number one, I mean, y- y- there's, you got to scale back. There's, there's definitely a level of unpredictability when it comes to hunting whitetails. And I think that's why we love it so much. Um, mm-hmm. but that, uh, that concept of really figuring out your timing, like you talked about, and that's a whole other episode in and of itself, because that, that's <laughs> yeah. like the strategy oh, yeah. of whitetail hunting itself. But my biggest takeaway from this is, you know, and, and it's it's not just on these micro tracks, I think it's just magnified, but you cannot out-habitat or out-manipulate the habitat. Um, You, you can't outdo that in relation to pressure. You you can't out, outdo that. Like no amount of habitat yeah. work and manipulation or property manipulation is going to be your trump card and, and like set above your pressure and learning that timing of your property, what you can get away with, how often, like you said for years that you can hunt morning afternoon and midday under the right circumstances but that was something you learned and i think anybody listening to this needs to understand that not every property is like that and you might have a track similar to size to yours phil but your best Mm -hmm. chance of reaching the goal that we had described before might be a, a much narrower window, or maybe it's only an evening stand at certain times of the year or something along those lines, but you just yeah. cannot yep. out habitat the pressure.
3: Yep. No, I completely, completely agree. Um, you know, I think that's a huge thing and, and having, I think, uh, you know, having, you know, backup plans or, you know, whatever it is, uh, you know, I, me personally, I'm fortunate enough to live in an area with, um, a really, really, um, you know, large amount of, of public land. Um, and so when I want to hunt and, you know, the conditions aren't right for my place, you know, I can go find a place where the conditions should be right, or I think they might be right, or I hope they might be right. You know, um, and, and just realizing that, you know, yeah, you can put a lot of work into a small property. Um, you can really get into the micromanaging of it. Um, and you might only be looking at, you know, uh, let's just say single digit number of hunts per season. Um, now sometimes, uh, you're like, you know, a lot of people be like, well, put all this time and effort into it. I'm hunting it, you know, and I get that. Quality over means. quantity. Have that's what it. we
1: said before, man.
3: Correct. Exactly. And, um, you know, most of the, of the bucks I've shot at my place the last few years have been inside of five sits. And I think the last three were, I think the last three were uh, three sits and in. Wow. Um, yeah. And so, um, you know, that, that's, that, that's just because I've, I've gotten to the point where I kind of have a, a good, you know, understanding of, of when to strike, you know, but I also went out of my way to try to make, um, make it a, you know, a location that I can do that as many times as, as I possibly can before the pressure is detected and, and the quality drops off. Um, and, uh, so, you know, sometimes, some years I, I, I mean, I would feel pretty comfortable, um, hunting it out to, you know, into the double digits, um, given the conditions are repeating to be correct, you know, being right. Um, but, uh, but Hey, if, uh, you do all that work and then, you know, on the first <laughs> first hunt or second hunt or whatever it works out, then you know, that's kind of what you did it for. <laughs> right. Um so uh but having having backup plans um or or other places, getting permission somewhere, um, you know, uh travel, doing a travel hunt, going somewhere, you know, going to another state, whatever, trying something new. Um and those are all things too and I think are super important, not just for the micro property, um, you know, managers, but everybody, I think, I think you gotta get out of your comfort zone. You gotta go do new things. You gotta try different hunts, different hunting styles, different hunting strategies, different types of habitat and terrain and stuff like that. You just, I think you, you, you sharpen a lot of those skills and, um, and they make you a better killer. Um, and I think, I think that's something that's a lot of times is lost, um, these days is that, um, you know, I think social media, um, and just everybody's, uh, you know, connectedness now, um, and everybody's access and exposure to information and content has made for, um, a lot of hunters who probably are passing opportunities for a harvest that um you know i think they would benefit from actually shooting um and i'm not saying just in terms of bucks i mean just deer in general um i had a mentor that really drove it home to me early on and he said the only way to get good at killing deer is by killing deer um i think there's just there's a lot of a lot of things where you go through that whole sequence, that adrenaline dump, and all that. Like, the more times you do it, the more exposed you are to it, the better able you are to execute. Mm-hmm. So, to That's go good. through all these things, put all this work in, and have an opportunity present itself and have a complete, you know, buck fever meltdown and not make a shot miss or wound an animal like you know i think it can be prevented by you know being a trigger puller um and getting out there i mean you know a lot of places where people hunt these days there is an overpopulation of does and in order to um effectively manage habitat um that's quite often sometimes very specifically manage habitat on a smaller scale, like on micro property, you got to take some does out because sometimes, um, you know, that you're, you're going to have more mouths than you can really feed or keep up with. Um, and, uh, you know, I think those are valuable, valuable experiences, um, for people. Uh, and not only that, I mean, it's really good eating, you know, great. It's great. Great it's great opportunity
1: have. it's great eating there's no doubt oh yeah. man well hey phil um I, I really appreciate you divesting all that information because i think it's really applicable for you know closing out the series that we talked about do you have any closing remarks or closing thoughts about it before we let you go
3: um no just really you know i uh, appreciate you taking the time have me on um you know listen to me uh ramble uh, for for I don't even know how long at this point um I can t- already tell my my throat's getting a little uh a <laughs> little scratchy. Um well, Hey, I likewise to, I appreciate.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Likewise, I appreciate you taking the time to come on to our onto our episode. You know, you've been uh you've been a great support here from the beginning at Pennsylvania Woodsman and I want I want nothing more to continue uh continue this relationship and, and keep having you on because I think you got a lot of good information um to share to a lot of our listeners.
3: Yeah, absolutely, man. Anytime, um, you know, definitely look forward to it. Um, and, uh, likewise, you know, I, I appreciate, uh, what you're doing with the podcast and, and, um, you know, getting, uh, getting, uh, the, the type of people you have on and, and, um, uh, being able to, uh, get that information out and share it with people. And, um, you know, uh, uh, from one, you know, Pennsylvanian to, to another, you know, I think the, uh I, I i really i'm super proud of uh you know where i live and and the the ability to hunt the the type of places that i get to hunt here in pennsylvania and i'm glad that uh you know there's a, a show like yours out there that's kind of you know showcasing that
1: well thanks man i appreciate that until then we'll just keep on grinding at it
3: absolutely man thank you have a good night man you
1: too thanks again phil we'll see you it.